0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy? I'm your host, Geordie Bailey. And I'm a member of his expansive and complicated family, Duncan Nickel.
1: Duncan, if you were a member of my expansive and complicated godly family, what part of that family would you belong to? This is the age-old question of fans of the Percy Jackson series.
0: Why, that's a good question. I guess I would go under um, Hephaestus, God of the Forge. if I got that right?
1: That, that
0: does check out you
1: know you obviously you're very mechanically inclined uh you you know you don't i don't know about you but i don't think duncan you're exactly the most
0: chatty caffy extroverted guy at a party would you say that's unfair i would not say that's unfair and personally having just read the first percy jackson book now when i look at like camp half blood i'm like i want to be the guy that stays at home and forges weapons not the guy that has to be sent on the dangerous quest Mm, mm. The one problem,
1: though, Dunk, is that you're much too handsome to be a part of VFS style. Oh, Geordie, you flatter me so much. But besides this flattery, Geordie, who are we and what are we doing here? You didn't even ask me who I'd be. Who'd you be, Geordie? Social butterfly, indeed. Mine's the most basic bitch answer because I fucking love archery. I love music. I love writing stories. Obviously, I'm in the Apollo camp, which is like everyone who reads the Percy Jackson books, like, obviously, I'll be in Apollo.
0: I don't think that can be the case. I think you must get a good diversity. Well, maybe not the people who read the Percy Jackson books. I'm thinking I know lots of Aries and I've known lots of Athenas. Maybe this is a
1: sampling error because I used to hear people talk about this a lot on Tumblr and Apollo is definitely the Tumblr god.
0: Oh, that he is. But I do feel like in my life I've met my fair share of Aries, Athenas, Hermes. They're all out there. And honestly
1: that is probably the thing that this book does most successfully. There was such a long period of time in the early 2000s where factionalism was the end or be-all be all of young adult and kid fiction. It started off with Hogwarts, you know, what Hogwarts house are you in, and then it was, it was Percy Jackson books, and you even had people for some reason, try to do the same thing with the Hunger Games and which district you belong to. Oh, that's some wild. And, like, that's ridiculous because <laughs> they're just in different industries. Being from District 13 doesn't give you any special qualities. It just means you're from North Carolina.
0: I suppose so. I know the Diver- Divergent series actually has an element to that, but I also don't understand why anyone wouldn't want to be... An element. An element. As though it isn't the defining trait. But I don't understand anyone who reads that book and doesn't want to think they're Divergent... Like, how sad is that? Yeah, I fit into the, the strict class system here. I'm not out of the way at all. It's ridiculous. It's, that is a, um, the absolute,
1: I am just writing this to fit in into the publishing space. I'm doing this to write directly to an agent. I have no love and inspiration behind this idea at all. Because the whole point, the whole point, be all and end all. Make a book about being a part of a faction. They're literally called factions. But, Duncan, we're not here to rant about the Divergent books. Books that neither of us have read. For I have seen some of the movies. We are an online book club where you and I, every other week, read and review a fantasy novel. And over the past two weeks, we've been reading Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief by Rick Riordan.
0: Oh, that we have, Geordie. I have really enjoyed this one. Percy Jackson's been so much on my mind. It's consumed my world recently. As probably everyone listening is well aware, a new Percy Jackson and the Olympian series is airing on Disney+. Plus. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not quite up to date, but I've loved everything I've watched so far of it. It's brought me right back. I am up to date. I think we should definitely cover both the book and the TV show. Let's obviously start with the book. I mean let's start with the book. Then let's talk about this adaptation. Then let's mention the other adaptation. (laughs) But it's been really good. It's really brought me back to wanting to re-experience this story. A story that I first read actually very late in life. Geordie, I think I've mentioned Hmm. this before. I read Percy Jackson. Gosh, I might have been... You told me that you were 21 when you read it. Then I'm going to take what I said back then as truth. 21 when I read it through and I read it sort of on a I guess I was in a stressful time. I wanted something that was a bit more chill out, easy reading. And this is something that I missed. Like, I genuinely missed this series. It wasn't like with Aragorn, where I read and didn't like and dropped. Never really touched it. So when I got into this, I was like, okay, well, it's for children. Bear that in mind, Duncan. But I flew through, like, all five books. Like, I was completely taken away. I was like, I wish I'd read this when I was younger. But even now, this holds up so well as an adult reader. I absolutely adored it. George, what's your history? All, all, all five, you say, Duncan. All five books. Yeah, all, all five. All five Percy Jackson, the Olympian well, books.
1: Yes, all five Percy Jackson, the Olympian books. But it's actually a teeny bit more expansive than that. Because what you fail to take into account, Duncan, is that there is the whole Percy Jackson and the general Immortals of the World cinematic universe
0: book universe. No, I am aware of it. I believe it's called the Chronicles of Camp Half Blood. It's like the big bracket name for this, and
1: it shouldn't be called that because not all of them are set at Camp Half Blood. I don't know. I don't know what what it should be called though. Yeah, Rick Ryden, after the success of the Percy Jackson books, I thought he'd stop, but he did not. Um, so I read the books when they were coming out. I've stretched my brain back as far as I can. The Jackson of the Lightning Thief came out in 2005, when I was seven years old. I did not read it when it first came out. Because I know that the second book was out by the time I was reading the first one. Because I immediately got the second one. I know that I was uh, jumped straight onto the third one. And in fact, I had my grandmother, who was paying us a visit bring it from the United States to the UK because it came out in the United States before the UK because that used to happen, Duncan. Um, and I, I, I implored her to please give it to me so I could read this book. So I think I was eight years old when I read the first three books and they played a huge influence on my life. It was my first time ever waiting and waiting and waiting in anticipation for another book to come out like i remember the battle of the labyrinth the fourth book like being like it's going to come out i was nine years old i would go to
0: the book store and see is it here is it here and it wasn't there that is that is so cute i mean i'm so happy you had that experience i don't think i ever had that quite with a book series even something like harry potter it was more of a Mm. Uh, it's on an event. It's like Christmas. It was like, yeah, it's gonna roll round in a year. You know, it's gonna roll round. But I wasn't there. Like the wearing... only, yeah, the only exception to that was obviously the
1: release of the last Harry Potter book because that was like a, like a media sensation. Like that was on the news nonstop. It was on blue. It was on like a twenty four live stream on Blue Peter.
0: So you've read the whole series, right? and you've read all the other books then? So you've read the follow-up series? No. Ooh. No, I haven't. Uh, after the first
1: five, it starts to get sporadic. Aside from the first five, the Percy Jackson, the Olympian books, I've never finished a Rick Riordan series. Not to say they're bad. Um, the Cain Chronicles, Duncan, are his one set in ancient Egypt. The Red Pyramid was the first book, he, the first non-Percy Jackson, but still in the, you know, Olympiany sort of neck of the woods series, was the first one he wrote after, after that. And then he started writing the Heroes of Olympus series, which is a sequel to Percy Jackson. You know, Percy's in it. He's uh, more of a supporting character, except in the second book, Son of Neptune, in which he's the main character. But then he falls into the background again, uh, for fucking epic reasons, but I never got beyond the third book in that series, I read up to the second book in Red Pyramid series, but at that point, I felt that I was getting a little old, I wasn't, obviously, I was 14, 15 years old, I was still very much in the same bracket as a time when I could have been reading that, but to me, knowing that it was a book I'd been reading since I was eight years old, it felt like I was too old for it. As all teenagers do, they reject the stuff they enjoyed when you were a little
0: kid. Charles I kind of think that's okay because I think you must have enjoyed it at like the peak time. Like you had that golden moment. I think having a break is absolutely valid. I I suppose at this time, if I wasn't reading Percy Jackson, I guess I was reading Artemis Fowl. Would probably be the mm. closest equivalent that I was reading at that kind of age group. Not quite the same That's impact a or good quality, comparison. But... I feel because I feel like there is a
1: similar level of genuine excitement and adventure, and the books just sort of being funny. The one thing which Artemis Fowl has, which this book
0: series doesn't, is <laughs> Artemis Fowl was weirdly violent. I think you meant to say fantastically violent, but yes. Yes, it was. People's fingers
1: got sh- severed, but got, like, beaten to death or shot to death in numerous
0: books. I mean, I have such a love-hate relationship with the Artemis Fowl series. It, At its peak, it was magnificent, um, but then it also mm. had some troughs. Some really inexplicable troughs, but overall... I Time travel, Orion, kept going back to Opal Caboy... God, they should have dropped that villain. Right, we're not here to talk about Artemis Fowl, though. We're here to talk about Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief, the very first book in Percy Jackson and the Olympian mm. series. We said five. Geordie, you do know that he's actually writing more under the Percy Jackson Olympian title. I don't think that's true. I think he's getting ghostwriters.
1: I think if you look carefully, you'll see it's like Rick Ryden presents. This is a mistake I'll own up to. The Rick Ryden Presents books were a thing, but no, 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 Duncan's right. He is writing new Percy Jackson books.
0: Okay, so I'll set back away from that. But then let's just look at these first five. Geordie, Lightning Thief. You read it as a kid, you loved it. I read it as a adult, you loved it. How was it on the reread? I loved it.
1: <laughs> my, my feelings for it have not changed in the slightest. I fucking loved reading it through again.
0: Honestly... Same. I had, if anything, maybe slightly improved. Yeah, maybe. I'm kind of curious to know how I would maybe re-rank this. Because um, I've kind of gone through life since finishing this series for the last seven years. With a very strong idea of how I rank those first five books. And uh, now I'm not so sure. Interesting. I'd like to hear your first assessment now. Okay. Right. So this is how I would rank the first five Percy Jackson Olympian books. Okay. In the bottom slot... I normally would put Titan's Curse. Interesting. In the fourth slot, I would put the final book, The Last Olympian. Interesting. In the third slot, I historically would actually put this book. Interesting. I think it's, it's Millpack. To be clear, I love all of them. These are all good books. Then I would say the, f- the second slot I would give to Sea of Monsters. Okay. I think it expands on the first book really well. And then I actually think the best book is Battle for the Labyrinth. I think it has just the right level of the fun and the plot structure the early books had. Mm-hmm. But also has some real emotional points that I think hit harder. And also because it's the first one where it brings the battle to Camp Half-Blood and it really felt like everyone in the series was really coming together at that point. No,
1: I totally agree. I would definitely, from my recollection, and what I, I realised in the advance of this episode is that it has been such a long time, even though I can remember basically the entire series beat for beat because I read them so many times as a kid and it was so foundational to my love of fantasy, it has been such a long time that... It's kind of hard for me to really engage with him in terms of like not points as not as points as almost literary history, but like books in of, of themselves. They are so th- fundamental to my understanding of books in my in my maturing years that I'm like, how would I even compare them? That being said, I'm really surprised how highly you wrote you you rated Sea of Monsters. I would say that's the worst one.
0: Oh, no, I love Sea of Monsters. It introduces a side character whose name I have forgotten. I feel awful about that. Sorry? Tyson? Tyson? His brother? Yeah, Tyson. I was going to call him Titan. I knew that was wrong. Tyson. I really liked his character. I think it's because he goes off to work for the Forge at the end. He just was that one sort of side character that gets introduced. And he's only really a a main side character in that one book. Mm. But I don't know. I just felt an affinity with him. And also, it riffs the most off The Odyssey. That's and right. some of the adventures there. Love, which is love the bit the of Greek mythology I'm most familiar with. So I think that's really what kind of ups it in my mind. Majority. I, I take it you don't fully agree then.
1: Not 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 that I disagree. I just um my recollection going back in my head is that I just um I don't know. I feel like Lightning Thief is an amazing introduction and the Sea of Monsters does the smallest amount to sort of shift the needle. I think that like the Titan's Curse, for example is um it does it plays with it in that like um Percy Jackson he's not supposed to be on the quest and like it's this it's the one that really starts to emphasize his and Annabeth's relationship because she is uh she vanishes from the book and her absence is dearly felt and that sort of um that 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 willingness to fight against the status quo of making it always the same adventure again and again where it's Percy and Annabeth as this dynamic duo, and then whoever is going to be their sidekick on that adventure. I think that um, that really sort of enhances the book series. And I love the introduction of Nico. He's uh, an amazing character. Yeah, I uh, th- that book is really close to my heart.
0: And it's hard for me to kind of sit here and disagree with you, because it's not like I don't love that book. I feel that when I just look back at the whole series, it had the fewer standout moments to me. Well, I just went, ah, oh, I can see that scene play out. So, Duncan, we read through The Lightning Thief again.
1: The, there's something really interesting about reading through the early chapters in particular, because every time they get adapted, they're always the exact same, and I really think it goes to show how much Rig Ryden nailed it. No one ever changes those
0: opening chapters. You're absolutely right. In both the film adaptation and the recent TV show.
1: And the musical.
0: introduction to to Percy. And the musical. God, mate. I haven't seen the musical. Let's not deep dive that much. That is a fine cut. You can't stop me. What we get out of this introduction is taking someone and having him... Because it's mostly done through first person. Yeah. So, I thought I'd pause. like... Was it? I just read the book. Was it first person? Maybe it was third <laughs> person present. Honestly, if you told me that I would probably have pleased you either way. It's to get Percy to get across his personality mm. so succinctly and get across what he is about and yeah. what what's coming after him is kind of about. So with Percy, he is put forward as a bit of an outcast kid. He does not have the easiest home life. He has elements of ADHD, of dyslexia, mm. and he struggles in school, he struggles to kind of pay attention and be a good little boy f- in the system, fitting in all of the boxes that he needs to. And the way Percy tells us this, well, the way Rick Ryden describes this through Percy's voice, I mm. think, just nails a feeling, particularly a-, a chord that obviously must struck many readers. but it's a chord that struck with me. I was like, yes. I don't get all of this, but I do get some of it. I get Mm. this feeling. No, absolutely. The way in which it's described,
1: like... The the, the, the fantastic thing about it is that it really gets in this kid's head. Like, he's so realised as a character through the narrative voice. The way in which he's been hard done up, and he has, like, complaints about the world, but it's never whiny. It never feels remotely whiny, because they all feel, like, really legitimate, fair things to complain about, like, about how there's stuff he can't help, and there's, like, teachers, but he owns up to, like, when he's a difficult kid, like, he, like, he admits how ADHD can make him disruptive. So, like, it's this this fine balancing act of this kid's hard done up, like, um, people just need to give him a chance, and the fact that, like, he's saying, like, yeah, and I have, like,
0: legitimate problems, which, like, I get why people struggle to work around me, you know? And that's something that plays in later where he, he kind of says, you know, one of the things that makes him most angry is being accused of something that he didn't do. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, This is a kid who will own up when it's his fault. There's another bit in the opening, which I love because it's, it's such a clever kind of element to put in there. And there's a scene where his best friend Grover, who's with him throughout the course of this book, is getting picked on by an older kid. And Percy's like, I'm going to kill her. And then he goes like, calm down, calm down. And this kid keeps picking on Grover, and then Percy's like, that's it, and starts to get up. And I really like that, because so easily you could have this scene where Percy's getting picked on, and he snaps. But I think it does so much for the character to have his friend being the one being picked on. And it's the, I'm going to stand up for my friend, I I can't sit here and watch someone else getting picked on.
1: I also really like the way in which like and so Duncan, I'm I'm sure you probably know the story about
0: why Percy has
1: uh, ADHD and um and dyslexia. I believe it
0: is it Rick Ryden's sons. It's he's sort of writing it for them. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Beautiful. Exactly. So his Rick Ryden's son had ADHD and dyslexia. So and he really really comes across that that he's had. Thousands of conversations with his son about the difficulty he has in class and the difficulty he has at school and like the problems and about the way words float around his head. And because he's clearly so familiar with it and he's so empathetic towards it that he inhabits it so well. So there's these great moments when so so when I was a kid, like I was a bit of a goody two shoes. I didn't know that I had like learning difficulties at that point. My parents deliberately didn't tell me. So I thought that I was, like, a <laughs> grade-A student just because I was, like, just a good student and I was paying attention. And the, f- and the way in which, like, I got super distracted in class, I just blamed it on other kids being loud. But in this in this scene in the museum, reading it through this time, now knowing that, like, my learning difficulties may mean that I can't concentrate in a loud environment... And the bits where he's like telling his fellow students to shut up and he gets in trouble for it. I was like, holy smokes. That happened to me so much as a kid.
0: I'm just, I mean, mate, I'm I'm right there with you. It is the most annoying thing when you're just trying to get everyone else to be quiet and the teacher's like, why? Because you obviously are the other one being a bit more aggressive. And you just want to be like, if I could just go back and just get those teachers and sit them down and be like, can you please explain to me what your logic in that decision was? Because either... You're an asshole, or you're bad at your job because you're not helping that child learn. <laughs> or you have different objectives or to what I think you're secretly a demon.
1: I remember as a kid, I used to just take the book to school to read it. And I would go up to my only friend and I would just read him the chapter titles and it would make him laugh hysterically. The chapter titles are all basically a joke. Like chapter one is I vaporise my pre-algebra teacher.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure what pre-algebra actually is. That's a very
1: American thing. This is quite an American book, Duncan. I believe that right before we started recording, you said there was another word in this book, which you were quite confused by because of it's uh, it's
0: different in American and in British Okay, Geordie, I've got to be the one to drop this. So, people, I get it. We use different words, different names. Sometimes it can be a bit awkward, you know? Bumbag, fanny pack, ha 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 family means something different in the uk mm. um other examples oh god so the one in this book he uses the phrase they walking around the streets of la and he's like oh it's rough around here you know you've you've got a lot of homeless people you've got a lot of gangbangers <laughs> and i was just like i've just had to put the book down and went okay you're an adult duncan don't laugh Clearly, <laughs> this means something in the US, different to what it means in the UK. So, Geordie, could you tell one,, you know, what does it mean in the US? It
1: just means, like, a gang. Like, it means, like, it's an LA gang. That's what it means. Like, it's racially coded, but it's not racist. It's, you know. So, in the UK, a gang is a group of people. A bang is sometimes you can... Confer- Duncan, you don't have to explain it. We're all grown-ups here.
0: I just like thank you, Rick Ryden. just that little bit for the British crowd. He actually does throw a bone to Britain in this, which I was like, thank you. You know, it means that in America as
1: well, right, Duncan? It just has two meanings. Then why would you pick it for your kid's book? But I mean, genuinely, why would you pick it for your kid's book? I mean, that is a just good for the gang member. I mean, I don't, re- I don't want to repudiate. I don't want to challenge his authority in this, but that's
0: a weird choice. Anyway, other than Rick Ryden mean great. He does throw Britain a bone, love it. Olympus sits over Britain for a few centuries. Yes it did. That makes sense. (laughs) I just hope that everyone listening to this does know the plot of this book. Gods are alive in a twenty first century America, not like American gods. They have kids like Um. american gods but only the greek ones (laughs) and those kids are demigods and they're like basically there is absolutely
1: no reason that this book
0: couldn't sit right alongside american gods shadow could be out there in a weird way the gods are nicer in this one and that is (laughs) our thing to say because they're not the best parents and i think it's really great because what we have if you're a fan of kind of the greek gods and if you're sort of a young person you kind of know them from maybe a bit more of a media lens It's really nice to actually Mm. put some of the moral values that the Greek gods exhibited in their myths into a modern setting and go, Do you know what? They're actually real arseholes a lot of the time. This is the introductory, hey, maybe these Greek gods are not
1: so great after all, pill for kids to swallow. Like, when you read the kid versions of Greek myths as a kid... That's pretty straightforwardly. The good, guys, the heroes are the good guys, and the gods are supporting the heroes, so obviously they're good guys too. This is your first chance. This is the one level up to go. Fundamentally, these gods are probably the good guys, but you know maybe they're they're kind of d- douchey about it, like. Like, you know, sexual violence is never a topic in this book series. Like, that's not appropriate for kids, so it doesn't get brought up. But there are plenty of people who challenge the authority of the gods, and uh, that's the central theme running throughout the books. I also... The funny thing is, reading this through as a kid... uh, So reading this through, having read the whole series, and also having seen various adaptations, like the movie, and the TV show, and the stage musical... The the thing you notice is that um, they all want to grapple with the heavier themes of the series and challenge the authority of the gods much earlier. They're very impatient. They can't, like this book does, just sail straight for a while. The gods are menacing sometimes. Ares is obviously a villain in the story. Zeus, at the end of the story, even though he's considered like the just ruler... Percy never challenges his authority to make these big decisions and he's he supplicates before him. He's still scary, like he's saying, I could vaporize you, kid. But his authority is never challenged. This book is not ready to go there yet. It's
0: only in the next book along, and the book after that, and the book after that. The only real idea about the gods that really gets challenged in this book is the depiction of Hades. I think there's a great yeah. subversion sort of in here yeah. where it's like, Hades is not always the villain. And he should stop making him no, out to and th-
1: It's It's really funny that um, that's a big impact I think this book has genuinely had. Like, I don't think we would have, like, what was the second fucking the next book in the A Court of Thorns and Roses series, which is a story of Hades and Persephone, I don't think you'd have that if a whole bunch of, you know, pre-adolescent book readers hadn't been primed to go, oh, you know what, maybe Hades isn't such a bad guy after. I mean, especially in the later books where he's like, a, a better dad
0: than a fair few of the other Olympians. Another great series that really takes that spin on it is the Law of Olympus series. My partner absolutely adores the comic. It's, and I completely understand why, it's oh, yeah, all that. about Hades and Persephone's relationship. And when she first started reading it, she was like to me, it's like, so is Hades not a villain? I'm like, not really. Not, not anymore, if anything, a lot less than all the other guys. <laughs> yeah, it's just like yeah
1: he's the only guy who loves his
0: wife but yeah he loves his wife he's mostly loyal to his wife uh, and I was just like to be honest the thing you got to remember about Hades worst thing he can really do to you kill you the other gods oh they get creative no
1: you because the thing he won't even do that because when you arrive in his turf you're already dead the only people that he really like kills is like Theseus and he deserved it <laughs> poor
0: Theseus not poor Theseus so I really like taking that different description and depiction of Hades because watching like Disney's Hercules, I was like, yeah, that is the bad guy. And you to think he's got a job to do, like everyone else. Have you ever watched Clash of the Another Titans? Not a good job. So, yeah, he's, he's, he's like the
1: sanitation keeper. Like it's an unpleasant job, but it's got to be done. Got to be done. Got to respect the man for sticking to it and doing a good job of it. The Egyptians had the right idea. The death
0: god is the good guy. It's the guy who keeps disrupting that shit who's the problem. It's a really interesting take and something that I was only really starting to get introduced to quite later in life. The idea of like, these, you know, people came up with these characters as their gods and went, yeah, how do you describe the world? Well, basically, the gods are kind of assholes And that's why the world's a little shit. And you go, yeah.
1: Okay. I mean, what I've had something really interesting explained to me once was that like, so like, the the norse people you know people from scandinavia uh for the most part their chief god was a death god who like armies would basically be sacrificed to to build his army for the end of the world and it kind of makes sense that that would breed the vikings like raiders
0: all across europe i mean it's such a dense subject and one that i feel like i kind of want to know more about but at the same time i want to know more in maybe sort of a 15 to 20 minute YouTube video kind of way. As we learned from our
1: American Gods episode, Duncan, you're not the the biggest aficionado when it comes to world mythology.
0: Absolutely not. I know very little about kind of folklore and ancient myths. And I love when you say ancient myths and I also find it weird where, where does ancient myths stop and like just out like dead religion start? But yeah, when it comes to the global sphere, I know very little outside uh, England's green and pleasant land to my shame and uh, so when
1: you were reading the percy jackson books how often were you just like completely in the dark like what the fuck is happening right now
0: oh more than i really want to admit i'll be honest before i read this book series i could not reliably tell you who the 12 olympians were Like, i just couldn't mm. and even now i definitely couldn't pronounce them all like my main introduction to like Greek myths came from watching Jason and the Argonauts, Clash of the Titans, mm-hmm. and playing God of War. <laughs>
1: I, <laughs> I I genuinely can't believe that Clash of the Titans is probably your most accurate
0: your most accurate experience of Greek mythology. Then the original and the remake. But I always liked it. I always liked the ideas and. Particularly the depictions, I love the depictions of like the Titans, these towering f- powerhouses. I like the idea of this war between these high and all powerful beings. Because it, to me, really tapped into this imagery of like a lot of the superhero stuff, you know. Zeus shooting about firing out thunderbolts is kind of like a Superman blasting out with his heat vision. It's. Got the same kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah
1: it's true. It's, it's where it all comes from. People, some people have said that Gilgamesh is the original superhero. Now, Duncan, the thing which I think is really interesting about the, this book series is that, to a certain extent, a, a big part of the appeal, and I think this is a criticism which has been leveled at a TV show and a justifiable one, a big part of the appeal of this book series is not Percy Jackson Goes and Adventures. It's Percy Jackson attends a very special summer camp. That's really interesting. And I'm going to ask you, who do you think that's appealing to? I think that... Well, it, I, I think who it appeals to is sort of beside the point. Because what I really mean is that there is a big, big appeal that was met with something like the Harry Potter books, where everyday school children want their school to be more interesting. So when they get to read a book about a more interesting school and most importantly it fosters this sense of belonging this sense of community the sense of being a part of a big network and knowing all the different uh, the different focal points of this um of this this network lie. Like, you know all the assigned roles of everyone in the camp because they belong in a special category of here's the book with the smart kids and here's the one with the aggressive sporty kids and here's the one with, with the, uh... Here's the mean girl, uh, tent. It all just makes sense. It's a nice, orderly bunch. So it's very comforting to read a book about that and imagine your place
0: within it with Percy acting as your avatar. I can certainly see that. I'm not going to actually necessarily say that was where it came down for me personally, but I can definitely vibe the idea of just being like, to basically be described your clique, be like, you're this type of person. You're this type... No, no, no. It's because of who your parent was. You just are. Sure. Go and hang out in your clique. No, yeah. I mean, there's there's a comfortability in conformity
1: and and it feels nice to, to know that you would belong somewhere. And also, Duncan, like... How much of his book is spent at Camp Half-Blood? I didn't have a page count because I decided to listen to the audiobook. I wasn't going to, like, purchase another physical copy of a book, which I gave away to a charity shop many years ago. That would be a bit too much. So I decided to listen to an audiobook for the first time. Uh, A very quick summary of the audiobook. The actor they had reading it has a pleasant voice, but not a versatile one. Uh, He really struggled with a lot of the all of the characters he tried to depict, and sometimes he just got it wrong, like a character was described as having an oily voice, and then he had a deep booming voice. that's not what oily means; he was supposed to be slick, it's supposed to be it's hard to pin down it's it's velvety, and it moves around, and it's fluid and like he tried to do a huge, deep booming voice for Zeus, but he ended just sort of sounded like a big giant, like an ogre not not great, man, not great. But I reckon about a third of this book, like a whole 33%, if not more, is just set at the camp. So
0: holding a physical copy, I can tell you, Geordie, you are kind of right. Percy sets out from Camp Half-Blood on his quest at about the 33% mark, maybe 35%. If You take out the opening chapters before Percy gets there, you're actually down to only about 25% is in the camp. And then, of course, there's also the final chapter. All right, so maybe that bogs up. So maybe you're right. About third, but I not plus, maybe a third tops. See, Georgie, I really need to just avert everything you're saying because I hear you. I see the appeal. But for me, that just isn't what I love about the Percy Jackson and might be why I prefer the sequel. It doesn't have to be what you love about it, Duncan, but I think this is an
1: absolutely massive part of the appeal. Consider the fact that every single book, he will always return to the camp. Even in ones where it kind of doesn't make sense that he would, like the last book. Like, he always will come back. It will always be the focal point, like the place
0: they all orbit around. There certainly was more camp time than I actually remember there being. I I actually felt like the fact have there's actually a few chapters, particularly the chapter where, uh, when I recently watched the TV show, it's sort of a montage of Percy, like, trying out. Or was he good at archery? Is he good in the forge? And that's a whole chapter of him just living in the camp and getting to know people and feeling part of it and being accepted. It's yeah. He spends two weeks at the camp in the book and there is a sense
1: that, you know, time is passing. Things don't fly apart. I would say that the TV show, obviously the second episode is all set at camp. So however many episodes it is, it's one of those is set at a camp and then they're gone. And I personally think that's not enough. i really feel like you're missing out on an instrumental important part because, like, why the fuck would you care if you've only watched the TV show The Camp Half-Blood's Friend? How many named characters from the camp are there in the TV show who you One. like? There's Luke. Really?
0: Luke, you, you sort of care about um, Charon, but he's sort of the mentor yep. figure. Not gonna lie.
1: Even, and, like, even Mr. D, who's, like, kind of a villain... Like, in the TV show. They've got him played by Jason Manzoukas, of all people. I mean, give him nothing to do. You cannot waste Jason Manzoukas. That's a crime.
0: Let's hold off and go on the TV show. Yeah, they don't spend a lot less time. Geordie, I don't care. I don't care that they don't spend as so much time at the camp. Because, you know, I don't care, care about the camp. When I thought about this book, Geordie, I thought they spent less time there. I actually thought this was dragging. Because I like it when he goes on a fucking adventure. Yeah, yeah, the adventure is
1: obviously really fun. Like, the way it goes from place to place and there's a sense of continuous movement across the country. It's a series of micro-adventures where they come to a challenge, they overcome it, you do a fun twist on Greek mythology, they move on to the next place. And what I noticed is that basically every single travel montage is sort of partnered with a joke. And if it's not partnered with a joke, it's normally partnered with, like, a heartfelt conversation between the characters. So there's a literal sense of progression across the country on their
0: quest, but also a sense of their deepening bond as they get closer. Really nice example I find for this, and Irvine does kind of draw attention to it. It's like early on, Percy and Annabeth, like they like hug for the first time, and then later on they like hold hands because they're getting like scared when they are going into the underworld. I was like, oh, going closer. Oh, I've not been this keen for, like, mm-hmm. such young children to fall in love since w- reading about Will and Lyra. <laughs> That's nice.
1: No, it's good. I mean, the funny thing is, is that the first time I read this book, I was so young that it genuinely didn't occur to me that that might happen. Like, it's obvious at this point, Um, you know, reading it. If I read this for the first time now, it would be very obvious that that was direction Rick was pushing it. at um, I me mean, calling him Rick. Like, he's my friend it was a really obvious way of place that Ryden would push it um but back then i was like
0: ew girls i thought it was really sweet and what i'm trying to get though there is what i really enjoyed is what you just described i love the fact that we'd go to a new place i would be like what cool greek myth it's going to be like reinterpreted here absolutely like amazing and some of them hit stronger than others i'll be honest with you geordie i full-on forgot one of them there's a did you forget the water park So the water park, I forgot the spiders. I remembered the water park. I completely forgot. I also forgot the spiders. Krusty. Like completely. Like no recollection. He's very forgettable. I've never forgotten him because I've always thought he was lame. It just felt like such a weak one. After we hit like the big people, we got like Medusa. We hit like the Chimera. We got like Ares. He's a minor
1: plot point in the myth of Theseus before he does the thing he's famous for. So
0: they're not all really strong, but still, even in those moments, I love what Percy does on his adventure he's He's really just clever and he has such a good mouth on him. I know isn't it it's
1: it's great like there's this perfect balance between he is bright but also like obtuse, never dumb. that's the great thing about it. He, like, doesn't get stuff, he bluntly misunderstands things, but when he needs to come up with a clever solution, he can come up with a clever solution, and it feels appropriate that this sort of thinks a little too fast kid, this mile-a-minute thoughts kid, could come up with some bright ideas about how to trick someone. That's another thing I really liked about Annabeth in this book, which is that while she is the smart one in the group, and she's smart because, like, she reads books, and she knows more about Greek mythology than him, But she's not a super genius, like she is in a lot of adaptations. She's just a bright kid, but she's also dumb in the same way that kids are. Like, they all fall into Auntie M's trap. And she snaps out of it quicker than Percy does, but she's just as obtuse. I like the fact that his book wasn't afraid of dramatic irony, because anyone who knows anything about... Greek mythology can see Auntie M's Emporium coming a mile away so it creates tension it creates a lot of tension in the scene and a lot of amusing dramatic irony when they keep failing to identify (laughs) keep failing to identify obvious things I actually found it really funny for almost ironic reasons when like she's completely covered up by a veil and they don't get it and there's statues in the garden and they don't get it and they hear hissing, but she explains that it's the deep fat fryer, so they don't get it. And then she says, "And I have two sisters." And Annabeth goes, two sisters!" <laughs> I, I even thought it's like it's like one of that. Uh, it's the Shack wakes up meme. I might make that for Instagram actually, like a meme of Shack's eyes opening, a blaze of light. Two sisters. I think sisters. this
0: also really nicely works because of the age of the kids, like being tough. 12- being like 12 years old yeah absolutely i'm like yeah i don't i buy it for a 12 year old to be you know when they're this desperate they're this hungry they're this tired i completely buy it one of the things that the movie adaptation completely screws is the age because it doesn't work if you age him up percy needs to be young to make the decisions he makes and the fact this sort of like does get repeated a bit throughout each sort of episode maybe like i'm not gonna when they get caught by crusty at the end i'm like oh god guys aren't you a bit smarter than this now <laughs>
1: Yeah, that one, again, that one is a bit too much. But, like, the way they get past, like, uh, Chiron at the end is fun. And especially, I really love in, this time in particular, getting past... Ch-
0: Sorry, Chiron? Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Is it not, not, not no, Chiron? Uh
1: the Gr- ancient Greeks didn't have a sh sound. They had a k sound. So, chronos, you can spell with a k, or you can spell it with a ch, like, you know, like, chrono, time. Chronology. Chronology, exactly, thank you. Um so yeah, so it's it's Karen and um it's Chiron and um also like in the book they in the audiobook they pronounce it as Cerberus it wouldn't be Cerberus, it's Kerberus, but you know that's that's me being phonetic-y. I did like the weird thing is is that um <laughs> of all the names they pronounced correctly, they pronounced- D- uh, Duncan what's the seventh planet in the solar system uh the seventh uh
0: Neptune uh okay, what's the eighth
1: planet? <laughs> um venus now you're fucking with me it uh i my my point was that it's um often pronounced either uranus or uranus but the ancient greek pronunciation would be uranos and the audiobook guy actually pronounced it correctly in this book
0: oh well props to them uranos
1: uranos
0: uranos yeah do you know what I'm, I'm going to start using that and people are going to be like "Don't what the fuck are you on about like, I have been
1: of the same thing man I'm, I genuinely wonder like I think I can get away with saying Kirky and Kerberos but I, I don't think I can get away with Uranos. I think I will become too
0: pretentious and the police will come after me so Geordie we love it we love all of that we love the journey we, you love Camp Half-Blood I love the journey too but let's talk about the end Geordie let's talk about the twist because you read this first as an eight-year-old. I read this verse as a 21-year-old. I think we probably had some very different experiences of it.
1: Yeah, oh yeah, you want me to go first, Duncan? You want to flex on me about how clever 21-year-old you was? Yeah, as an eight-year-old, I didn't realise it was going to be a twist. I I went along with everything the whole time. I was convinced it was Hades because the book told me it was Hades. And then when the book told me it was Ares, I believed it was Ares. And when I got to the end, you were like, it was Luke. I went, huh?
0: What? How? No! Okay. I'm glad you got to have that full experience. For me, oh, i am got to tell you now, Geordie, I maybe got this a bit later than I, I feel like I should have for a 21-year-old. So, obviously, I knew it wasn't Hades. Clearly not Hades. Sure, then sure. Then we get to him, I was like, oh, Kronos is behind it. Great. But to be honest, I kind of forgot that someone was meant to betray him. And I had this moment early on, not when the flying shoes that Luke gives them tries to drag Grover into the pit that didn't tweak that wasn't a thing for some reason I thought oh Kronos yeah. is just no me neither I remember distinctly like that didn't just didn't register me but
1: I did by the way I don't want to make clear I did sort of get into the fact that Kronos was behind things
0: like I was smart enough to know that but the only to be fair good on you very defensive of eight-year-old me <laughs> I think Kronos was sort of yeah the moment they like you can't wear those shoes and I kind of went Luke should know that They set Luke up as very well aware of, like, how Percy can't fly. Like, Luke should know that Zeus hates Percy and Percy can't be flying on this journey. So why would he give him those shoes? And then I kind of forgot again. And I kind of thought Ares was the traitor. That's what they were talking about. Until at the very end, when it just kind of hit me in the face and I went, oh. It is kind of a
1: nuanced twist, to be honest. There are layers to it. Like... You have to understand the fact that Luke, like, you know, inspired by Cronus, but already resenting the gods, decides to steal both the Helm of Darkness and the Lightning Bolt. But also, you have to then track that it didn't work, and he got caught, and then there's another stage to the plan, and he had to retroactively change the plan. And here's the thing, Duncan. What I love, I love in a book series where an evil mastermind is smart, not because they have everything planned out, but they're able to react to a change in their plan and then make it work anyway. Like when I read Bleach for the first time and Aizen was like, I planned out every stage of your journey. I thought to myself, like, it's so much less impressive that you planned out every stage of Ichigo's journey than you going... You know, you did some stuff I wasn't aware of, but I've in- I been—it was able, because I'm so smart, to make it work for me.
0: I think when they say I planned out every stage of the journey, particularly on that Bleach example, where the villain is like, oh no, I knew every part of your personality. I'm like, it just speaks too much of like the author going, no, they're smart because I say they're smart. They're basically omnipotent.
1: And also goes to imply that ichigo is not a deep complex character if his every single action can be predicted because he's incredibly simplistic
0: or the very least you can plan them in like re-broad really strokes go well i knew you would attack us it, i don't know it just rings false doesn't it it just goes no mm, one's that does, smart no one knows what everyone's going to do
1: yeah and it's way more interesting if something weird happens to, to throw off the plan that doesn't even do like the hero makes a different choice like a completely inconsequential thing throws it off like that's so much more interesting than everything went to plan everything's great somehow i'm still losing
0: it almost yeah it almost makes you seem worse because then like well how come you not planning for the hero to beat you at the end and it also makes you go wait so your plan was so precise that if the hero was just delayed by a day your plan gets thrown off I think mean, that's actually a case yeah. in Bleach. Where if the hero didn't arrive by a certain point, the plan doesn't work. So what if he was no, just late? Not. He just took a wrong turn and got lost. Again, we're talking about the wrong series. At least it's not narrative this time. But anyway, and that's a really great case that shows that is a threat because he can think and can plan. What I do think in this book, though, when Percy goes down and he goes, "Luke, what's that new sword you've got?" and he goes, "Oh, it's one that can kill humans as well as monsters. I call it Backstabber."
1: Boom! Boom!
0: Boom!
1: Boom! 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 Yeah, alarm bells
0: ringing. Like, okay, do you want to go in the woods alone and drink some coke? You want you
1: want to do some stranger danger? No, I mean, genuinely, like, of course Percy would trust Luke. Like, of course he would.
0: I know. And I can see it because obviously this is the older kid that Percy thinks is the coolest guy around. He knows that Annabeth, that he kind of has like feelings underneath, always has a bit of a crush on Luke. He, you know, he super looks up to this guy. I get it. And I get that he's always a little hesitant, mm-hmm. but he's like, but it's Luke. I get to hang out with him solo. It's going to be great. That'd be a lesson, kids. Don't
1: hang out with bad influencers. And also, don't listen to our podcast. I say the F
0: word too much. I do too. You're going to have to beat me. Have fun with that.
1: What? What do you... Don't... Why did you say that?
0: What? Bleat.
1: <laughs> how heard you say, you're going to have to beat me. No, bleep me. <laughs> I'm going to play it back. I'm pretty sure he did say beat.
0: You're going to have to beat me. You're going to have to beat me. Beat me.
1: <laughs> he does say it. I knew he said it. I knew it. So, yeah, great twist, especially as a kid. Do, uh, do you, so you think it pays? it works as an adult as well?
0: I think it does work as an adult because you're so set up for the gods, and obviously you know not Hades. That's very obvious. But I do think it's good because even if you do see the the twist coming, it works because it's still the betrayal. It's the betrayal of Percy and his trust, and that still hits hard, even if you know it's going to happen. Yeah, and I've always say a good twist in
1: a story should have fifty percent of the audience going, "No way," and the other half going, "Yes, I knew it." Because that's a sign of a good twist. If you're doing setup, what I really liked this time is at the halfway point, they have Percy call back to camp using um, IR, there's a joke in here about, sorry, IM, and there's a joke in here about Percy saying instant messenger? No, 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 iris messaging. The kids these days are not going to get that joke. They don't know what instant messaging is. Wait, do they not? Um, no, Duncan, of course not. They have DMs. Duncan, I'm in your DMs. Yeah, and, and, and in that moment, Luke is going like, no, 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 Percy, don't worry. It's Hades, like, for sure. It can't be anyone else. And you're like, oh, yeah, he's laying it on too thick. If Percy were a little bit more suspicious, that would probably stand out a little more.
0: And I also kind of like, even if Percy had tweaked at that point, I like the idea that, and he'd, like, brought up with the group, Annabeth is too, like... Enamoured with Luke to she would mm. probably dissuade him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like, she's like, in
0: Luke's core. Like this she would work.
1: She starts to think pretty early that something is amiss with the quest, but what are you gonna do? They can't just turn around. Like they they have to see it through, even though
0: they think something is up. And Percy still has a strong personal motivation to go to the underworld. It's sort of That's a right. perfect plan. Even if he's like, it's not Hades. He still wants to go to the underworld to save his mum.
1: Yeah, and that's a classic, you know, that's the classic heroic choice. It's dangling two people off the bridge. Who are you going to save, Spider-Man, your mum or the world? Uh, It's classic. I mean, obviously, and it's appropriate for kids in that way. Actually, there's something I want to bring up. Speaking of appropriate for kids we mentioned before about how this book kind of plays it straight with the Greek gods for the most part where they're a bit dodgy but it doesn't really challenge their authority or anything at this point because it doesn't want to rock the boat too much and that made sense to me as a kid because I came from like a stable family I didn't have to like I didn't like even think about parents not being someone you could trust But the thing that Luke brings this up in the book becomes the underpinning philosophy of the rest of the book, which is that do kids owe their parents love? So a lot of people are going to come to this book series who have really negative relationships with their parents, who wouldn't mind if one of their parents turned out to not be a real parent and was actually like a replacement for their true godly parent who made them special. I think there's something really interesting about not only fulfilling that need for escapism that a lot of kids have, but about how, like, honest and real this book is in terms of, like, the real problems some kids face. Percy comes from a really
0: unstable home. It's kind of heart-wrenching, even reading this as, like, an adult, to see Percy's relationship with his mother and his kind of abuse... Well, no, it's kind of... his abusive stepfather.
1: Yeah, and this is stuff I didn't get as a kid. Like, I just didn't get it. I only got it re-reading it because I've am because i grown up and I understand the world better and I understand that childhood isn't always sunshine and rainbows.
0: The character of Smelly Gabe, who I actually think Rick Biden does a really clever thing here by giving him that kind of childish nickname so that for yeah, the majority it sort of lightens it, but re-reading this adult to get to the end of this book didn't gets dark and serious when it talks about Gay's relationship to Percy's mother. It's made very explicit Mm -hmm. that Gay physically abuses her. And the kind of messaging around this, this sort of... Percy's there like, I have the power now to just deal with him. And Percy then deciding, no, it's like my mother's choice or my mother's action to take. It's just...
1: Yeah, that's, like, weirdly, like, mature and grown up for a book series like this. Like, so much of his book is about being a power fantasy, but he steps aside from a power fantasy and says, like, no, no, like, this is a situation I don't get. I have to, like, step away and let my mum
0: handle this. It's really kind of involved in there's so many kind of elements to talking about why percy's mum's in this relationship because it somewhat protects percy from like the monsters and what she's putting up with and Mm -hmm. honestly geordie it almost Mm. almost is too much a little bit it's almost like it gets really real at the end of this book i'm like whoa I i wasn't quite ready for that
1: Like, this is the first book I think I read where, like, the protagonist came from a poor family. Like, the equivalent series that's coming out around the same time are the Harry Potter books, right? And Harry Potter's book is, like, he has a neglectful home life. But he's, like, rich. Like, from the age of 11, he's super rich. And, like, that's a big part of the fantasy. Like, you get to just buy your own things and you don't need to rely on his his, his, uh, adoptive family. But this, like, there's no reprieve for Percy. When he goes home, his problems are still there. Like, his mum's doing better, but they're still poor. And she's still going to have to scrimp and save to send him to a private school. And something I really appreciate throughout the books, and I think this genuinely had a good impact on me, is that eventually, Percy gets a new stepdad. And, like, he's a nice guy. And he's a nice guy and, like, a stable, normal, healthy guy. And he becomes this new role model for Percy to look up to. And there's this astounding moment at the end of the fourth book, which actually, I remember, had a tangible, almost shaking effect on me when Poseidon shows up to Percy's 15th birthday. And he meets Percy's, like, soon-to-be stepdad, who's just asked Percy, like, listen, I'm gonna propose to your mum, I hope you're cool with that. And Percy's like, I am cool with that. It's such a mature, healthy scene. I wasn't prepared for it. Like, I couldn't, I just, it was so shocking to me that Poseidon would show up with his ex-girlfriend's new partner and just be chill.
0: Oh, God, it it was really interesting, and for someone who you know went through the the stages of like gaining a stepdad, it's really interesting. I, I love the fact that Percy kind of writing, in fact, through this book, it kind of shows that like it's not this kind of villainization of the role. I think this is something that you get from very like, a lot from like classic Disney. It's like, are the evil stepmother, and I thought that like the guy can just be chill, and he's not percy's like special magical all super cool other dad but he's just a nice down-to-earth bloke and that's actually quite an important influence on percy i do think particularly not so much but a little bit into the final books that like he has this sort of human grounding of like you don't have to be the superhero the start
1: of the the fifth book is like his soon-to-be stepdad teaching him to drive so wholesome good Wholesome fun. fun,
0: and I think that's what Raiden does really well. Comparing it to, say, something like Harry Potter, where Harry's sort of like muggle life really does get left very much in the dirt. I like the fact that with Percy, mm-hmm. his sort of everyday human life doesn't get kind of thrown out the window. Percy's like, No, I, I do need to still live a bit normally, I go and have my adventures, yeah, and then I go back valuable. to normal life. There are people there that mm-hmm. matter, and this still matters.
1: Totally. I mean, like, if Harry could live at Hogwarts year-round, he would. But Percy actively chooses not to live at Camp Hartlewood year-round. Year-round. Which would be the safe choice. So, it's just another reason why it's great. Sorry, it's Joey. As we were talking, I
0: was, I was really talk about it, just going, yeah.
1: Another reason why it's great. This, like, this book has so few flaws. Like, Duncan, is there a problem in this book? Aside from Krusty not being that cool?
0: No, not particularly. I genuinely think this is, even comparing it to other books for the same sort of age demographic. And I am sort of maybe talking Harry Potter, Artemis Vow, maybe the very first Northern Lights book in his dark materials. And even going back a few years to maybe Mm. something like, I don't know, like the Belgrade as another kind of fantasy book that I guess is for the same age demographic. Don't think any of them Mm -hmm. do it things as well as Percy Jackson does, not only in being a good book, but being a good book for this age group Mm -hmm. and teaching lessons. You
1: said, you said Duncan in our year in review that, you know, sometimes what you enjoy most is not the same as the best of a thing. You know, you said like you can have a favorite band, but you can probably admit that a band which you don't like is a better band. I have a similar philosophy in regards to something being basically perfect. So to give an example, there's a video game called Papers, Please. It's not my favorite video game in the world because I don't enjoy playing it a huge amount, but I do consider it pretty much perfect. Like, it has an end goal, and it achieves that goal completely. And Percy Jackson is pretty close to being a perfect book. Like, you don't have to like it, But in terms of it has a goal, it achieves that goal ably, it's fun, it's enjoyable, it's funny in a way where it hasn't become dated, that's genuinely impressive.
0: I don't think I'm going to like debate you on this, but I really don't think I can. I do think Percy Jackson is an example of someone who set out with an objective and just ticked the box. I said many, many moons ago something like uh, Reign to Green Rider. So, oh, it's a 10 out of 10, 7 out of 10. It's a perfect execution
1: oh, yeah, that's, that, of what yes, it's set example. out to do.
0: It's not trying to be an epic fantasy with all these multiple moving political factions in a dark edge. It's not trying to have, like, like. it's perfect. Well, it's not a perfect horror. No, but it's not trying to be a horror. It is perfect for what it's trying to do. And I really do think I put it middle of the pack for this book series, and that really only speaks to how I feel the other two books that I put above it i just do elements that I like more. Um Sea of Monsters, I think, just emphasise the quest sure. more than the camp. So I do prefer it. And I do That's think true. maybe Battle of the Labyrinth, maybe, is actually just slightly better. It's I think it, rig, maybe that uh, is more really perfect, good. if such a thing exists. Because that book is Chef's Kiss.
1: <laughs> I think, maybe, I don't know, maybe, who knows? It's definitely more, yeah, it's... uh So, Duncan... If this book is so great, if it's so perfect, why do people
0: keep trying to change it? Well, there's been three, as Geordie's alerted to me to, major adaptations. I don't know about the musical, but there was a film and there's now a TV series. And obviously, why do you adapt something if it's so perfect because it makes money? I'm going to sidestep that question. Why do people want to change it in terms of the actual plot? So putting the old movie aside, which I think we can all agree now doesn't need to be watched... By anyone and focusing no like
1: the changes made in it are to make it easier to make but it isn't made from the point of love it's like oh I get it it's about a kid who's part God uh, there's got a bunch of Greek myths let's keep it let's age it up let's make him 15 16 year olds instead of 12 year olds boom bada bing we're gonna make tons of money right oh no what's the
0: matter why, doesn't, why does everyone hate this movie classic post Harry Potter kind of syndrome film But yeah, Disney Plus have put out a new TV series which has a lot more time to really go into every part of this book. And I will say, uh, the TV show is eight hours total. Eight hours, I think, is enough that if you wanted to do this book absolutely by numbers, I think you could. Like, any change... Yeah, any changes is a real decision, not a limitation imposed on them. And they make some changes, Geordie. I would say that...
1: In terms, just jumping over, like, the small, unimportant changes. Like, for example, characters' appearances. Obviously, like, Percy's blonde now, instead of black hair. Annabeth's black now, instead of white. A whole bunch of racists absolutely lost their shit about that. In terms of, like, the actual changes that matter. Stuff like expediting the story so you don't spend a lot of time at camp. You just get onto the quest straight away. I get that. Like, the show wants to be more dynamic and they want to justify the fact that it's a TV show, so they don't want to have episodes where you're just sitting around in one place, because that looks cheap. Yes, it's Disney, you have a big budget, let's make the most of it. That makes total sense. Uh, There's a scene where Percy falls out of the Dover arch, and he falls towards the ground and gets picked up by a water plume, because clearly (laughs) Rick Riding received hundreds of emails over the years saying, you can't jump from the arch to the river, it's really far. So clearly that, that was a bee in his bonnet. But there is a substantial change beyond that, Duncan. I wonder if you
0: agree with me in terms of how it's So different. I'm going to say what I think you're going to say it is, and then you can tell me if I'm completely off the money. I think, based on our, and this links into our prior conversation, I think the TV show is taking a much more critical eye to the Greek gods... ...than this first book does. Maybe not more than the series as a whole does... ...but it definitely gets more critical a lot quicker.
1: That is a fundamental part of it... ...but that's not my main criticism. Uh, My main criticism is that the TV show has no nuance. This is a weird thing to say about a book... ...for 12-year-olds... ...or which an 8-year-old enjoyed... ...but the, the book has way, way more nuance. Like, you can read between the lines... ...and see the problematic elements right from the start... You don't need to have it hammered home in dialogue again and again and again. How much they resent the gods, how suspicious Percy is of his dad, how neglectful um, Athena is. It's so over the top. The whole show is over the top. It's overly dramatic. There are so many scenes of people talking about how deeply important it is. I'm Duncan. I can't remember if we said this on mic. You said you're a little behind the show, right? You haven't seen the latest episode, episode four. No, I
0: haven't. I think the last episode I watched was the one when he falls out the arch. I've watched a little bit. I've, I have actually, to be fair, I've watched about half an episode. I watch TV in an awful fashion where I, can, I take 15-minute cuts <laughs> here and there as I can. So I have seen Ares. I have seen the actual actor show up on a bike, but that's really it. So the thing
1: is that, like, I was enjoying the show a lot until I started reading the book. And then suddenly I had to compare them. And I was like, oh, my God, this is falling so short. Episode five is so overly dramatic in terms of, like, instead of Percy and Annabeth's adventure through the water park being like, it is literally a moment for them to get closer Like, they have to go into a tunnel of love together as a boy and a girl. That's embarrassing. They make it through. It's an adventure. They all get a, you know, they all successfully do it. It's great. In this, it becomes like a whole thing. Like, the whole episode is about this really unimportant trial, which was just kind of fun. And mostly introduced the fact that Annabeth was afraid of spiders. But in the TV show, it's like, oh no, Percy, you need to make the ultimate sacrifice. And Annabeth would kind of have a big argument about who gets to sacrifice who, and then there's a huge scene where Annabeth like angrily and dramatically confronts her himself about how toxic their family is, but Percy isn't. Percy's better. Percy's so
0: good. Whoa. And then Hephaestus lets him go. Whoa, man, that is. Oh gosh, that is a lot more. I I always feel like I've dropped. I've stopped just before the shit hits the fan. Because there have been issues so far. There was a tiny moment in the previous sort of episode where there's conversations about like Athena and, and the change from the book, where Athena like withdraws her like protection of Annabeth. Oh, well, that's a bit harsh. But that's crazy. That's very intense, given what we know of the character so far. But that to me just feels. I mean, it almost to me feels a little bit, Geordie, like they're like, okay, this is the episode. The episode is at the water park. So we need to make the, the water park feel like an, a full episode. It genuinely
1: could be the fact that, like, listen, we built a set. You need to make the TV show take place there. I can I can feel that. We made a big, expensive throne. Like, this cost thousands of, do- thousands of dollars to make. The CGI team is going to do this big, expensive effect. We made a statue of a kid. You need to have this episode be set here. You can't just throw this
0: money away. But I like how you've really drawn upon the fact that Annabeth is directly saying things like, the gods aren't good or they're not just. That isn't really something I feel like they would say at this point. No, because they're kids. They're kids. They talk like
1: kids. Like Rick Ryden was a school teacher before he was an author. Like he hung out with kids all the time, he listened to them talk. He like based Percy Jackson a lot off his kid. He was really good at writing. And I have to wonder, Rukai didn't obviously became a professional author. Maybe he hasn't spent as much time hanging out with kids in the past 20 years, you know? That
0: is something that I feel and I'm quite looking forward to seeing how they deal with the um, the casino they go through later. Because in the casino, in the book, what kind of tits Percy off that something's not right is someone uses like outdated slang. I'm like, well, mm. that's really changed in the 20 years since the book came out. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, like, maybe he's going to say something is like, he says, man, that guy doesn't have any riz. And all these people are going to be like, what the fuck
0: does that mean? And that is something I have noticed on the TV show. And I did kind of feel like, oh, do you need to make this set in a time now? Because it's changed. It's been 20 years is a long time. It's the the difference between the release of the book. It is. I
1: found it really interesting where this book tries so hard not to date itself yeah like the one thing i can think of is that in a later book i think Titan's curse he's going to say led zeppelin was a band that was like big when my mum was a kid which is quite different now because that means that his mum is in her so she's born in so, 50s being her 50s yeah
0: yeah it's we've had a full generation like since this book's release it really freaks me out to think that like 20 years, it's been so long since the book's released, if you went back again, you're in the 80s. And, like, that has a very clear aesthetic. That Percy did a,
1: a Percy does a fucking Fortnite dance.
0: Yeah. That's not a joke. If you haven't seen a TV show, that happens. So it's meant to be set now, but then you get so many more questions. It's like, yeah, of course. well, every kid has a mobile phone. Every human has one. Like, some of the things you're not, in the yeah, book, yeah. there are wanted
1: posters. There is a disposable camera, Duncan. <laughs>
0: There is a disposable camera. They used to just throw cameras away. That's insane. <laughs> exactly. But I do think the book overall does a good job of keeping it kind of timeless. I know we made that joke about instant messenger earlier, but it it keeps it well enough. But you're right. The TV show, it always feels a little bit now disjointed because certain things almost don't quite work in the same way. It's something that we always want to have to throw a bone over to Harry Potter that doing quite well by having the majority of the entire book set in this magical setting where they go, oh, muggle technology just doesn't work around magic. And wizards have this weird, Mm -hmm. their fashion just stopped. Apparently they followed muggles up to a point and then just kind of cut out. You kind of make it more timeless where I think Percy Jackson will struggle with adaptations, although the book doesn't very clear. The book keeps it kind of okay just it just works
1: it just works
0: and you know maybe you can say that you know you know what always you know
1: what's always weird yeah so the alex rider books uh all take place basically within i think a two-year time span at some points in the books he goes from 14 to 15 years old but the video game consoles he plays all keep changing so he, he, he obviously he's a ripoff off no, he's inspired by james Bond. so just like James Bond, the technology keeps updating, but he's the same.
0: Like it's, it, it maintains this, this gag. It's something that you just, I think you almost need to just accept the fact that it's of a time in a weird way. I think if you were, no, I don't accept that. I think all media
1: needs to belong in a time and place. Like, when you make a TV show, there is going to be visual iconography that sets in a time and place. And it's fine that it has to make this big change. It's fine that Percy Jackson does a Fortnite dance. Um, The great thing about the books is that because kids don't change that much, like, especially in the last 20 years, where culture has become a lot more osmosis, I don't know how to say this, osmostasized. <laughs> it's become much more uh, fluid. And so even though we have things like new things, like new words and new slang and new way of relating to each other, a lot of the stuff that works in this book has fundamentally wo- fundamentally still works. Like, no one says something is gnarly. No one says something that belongs in the 1990s. Early 2000s slang... Still works. There aren't big pop cultural references that don't make sense anymore. There are no jokes
0: about Britney Spears' bald head. And by kind of making... uh, You're right, because the fundamentals here of uh, the outcast kid, it wouldn't take a lot to take Percy Jackson and move him back to the 90s or move him to the 80s. You think of his actual journey, he goes on. Sure, yeah. So... And the same way he can be moved forward. So that is a plus. I do feel like in the TV show, I don't mind it. Don't mind what? Things like the thought, the things like the Fortnite dance.
1: That's just the least
0: important part of what they've changed from the books. And to be quite honest, if you look at something like that, well, if you don't know where the dance come from, he's just, you know, a kid with ADHD doing a silly dance. He's doing a silly dance. Yeah, you know, that's
1: right. In in ten years' time, no one will know what the fuck that is. Who cares?
0: So, do you recommend yeah. the TV show, yeah. then? Or do you tell people to stay clear? <sighs> I don't know.
1: I think I need to see it through to the Emperor to decide that. I definitely don't recommend the last two episodes. Uh, I think they're, they're not good. I, um, I actually liked the change they made to the Medusa scene, I didn't like the fact that it got rid of the dramatic irony completely because, like, it's it was fun. It was like a fun show, and now it's a very serious, gloomy show. But I do like the recontextualization of Medusa because that's a character who has been reanalyzed, much like the way Hades has been uh, reanalyzed later over time. the The childlike nature of a show means that they can't grapple with the darkness behind the character of Poseidon not a good guy, a more adult version of Percy Jackson, you know, if American Gods featured Poseidon and Medusa, it would probably have a much more frank discussion about this, but the way in which that show gently nudges towards this idea to show Medusa as a victim as someone to be sympathized with and pitied, but still stopped, like because she is a threat to them I um I thought that was good. I thought it was a it was a good balance which they managed to achieve and um uh, and I think that was a positive change. But then everything else, it ain't broke. Why fix it? I have to wonder if it's that so much time has passed that Rick Ryden his changes relationships to those early books. It was written in two thousand and five. He's probably come a long way as a writer since then. Maybe he wants he wants to re-analyse it
0: completely. He just wants to do a very different thing. I can very much understand the idea of this author coming back and wanting to do it a bit differently. I, I also would love to... I'm very very interested, let's put it this way, actually, to read maybe one of his more recent books in the Camp Half-Blood series and see if maybe that more matches the tone of the TV show. Could, could just be like transition. Like If he's you know, darkened the tone as he's gone, he kind of wants to bring that tone back round. I personally still do recommend the TV show. I think it's a fun show. My sister, her boyfriend's watching it for the first time, like having not read the series. Literally, mm. he did not know Percy was Poseidon's son. Like that was a big moment for him. Plot twist! <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so, and he's gonna really be having fun. I do think it's a fun Funny. show. I think for me,
1: it's it great. I'm glad he's having fun. Like I'm glad the fact people like him can.
0: enjoy I think what show. needs to happen for me to. Fully really get into the show, like I do recommend it. But I think for me, I just need to, like you said, see it finish. I think I need to see like all five books adapted because this can. <laughs> that's a lot. Of, that's a big ask. I man. know, but I think this can really work if it fits. This the tone and this darker kind of angle fits the full package. But it's got to kind of complete the arc. We've got to actually go somewhere. You can't just make it darker and then have the same ending. I think you've got to kind of land this kind of more critical approach further down the line and i want to make something
1: really clear yeah i i'm sorry to interrupt you duncan because i realized that i could be easily misconstrued here my problem with the tv show is not that it's different i'm very fine with being different i really like when authors get to do dramatic reinterpretations of their work i think that stardust the book and stardust the movie are extremely different and they're both great and they're great for different reasons I think that the show chose to make all these changes and the changes they made are not better. And
0: that's the problem I have with the TV show. Well, Geordie, I think we're just going to have to disagree on this one because I think I, yep, so totally far, happy the changes we made, I think we get enough extra out of it. I like the difference in Medusa. I like the difference in the top of the arc. I will wait and see what this new scene at the water park does and I will wait to see it finish. But so far, I'm actually kind of in favour. I like a little more edge. Sure, yeah.
1: I'll tell you one thing I do like. I do like the reinterpretation of Gabe because I feel like if you if you saw this caricature of an abusive father up close and personal in it, uh, I feel like it would be too much of a downer for a lot of kids. It's one thing to read it. I feel like seeing it in person would be too unpleasant for them, maybe. And uh, I like the fact that they made... Percy's mom is a little bit too sweetness and light in the first book. That is actually a criticism I would make. She's so good. She's so nice. She's almost too good. I like the fact that in the show, she's clearly, like, kind and a good mother. But she's obviously so stressed. Like, you can see it in so many scenes where she's like, especially in, like, the third episode or the fourth episode with the arch. You're like, oh, my God, I have a difficult kid. I'm really trying to keep my patience here. Like, yeah, a a normal mum. A normal mum
0: who stands up for herself a little more. I like the reinterpretation of her. Couple pros, couple cons. Just going to see how the scales end up balancing.
1: I'll tell you, Duncan. I'll tell you right now. There's a serious, serious
0: risk that I go and I buy the
1: audiobook for Sea of Monsters.
0: I mean, I wouldn't stop you, Geordie. I've absolutely loved this reread. I think I'm on the... This is not... Listen... (laughs) This year, the objective,
1: Duncan, the objective was to read books in fantasy, which I have never touched before, to not do retreads, to do, like, the fundamental big picture stuff. And, and now, I really want to read these books again, and that's such a backslide.
0: I mean, it would be, Geordie. I I probably won't join you on that journey, despite how excited I kind of am. Maybe I'll I'll read this through as the TV show. The TV show keeps going. I can see myself picking each one up year by year and catching up as the TV show progresses and doing that comparison. But, Geordie, you've got to be strong. You've got to not backslide. You've got to do something new.
1: That's right. And so I have to make a strong choice, Duncan. Now... For the listeners at home, Duncan and I both have a holiday coming up. I know we just had one. Don't complain. I'm going skiing. It's going to slap. Um, As long as I don't break my leg, I'm sure I'll be fine. But because of that, we're going to do a short one uh, so that we can read it in advance and make sure we still have episodes out for you guys and we don't miss
0: anything. Fair play, Jordy. Fair play.
1: So, picking a short book, picking one which is going to challenge us, and is going to take us to places that of us have been before. I've made my choice. I checked. This could be defined as fantasy. It doesn't meet any other qualification that would make it not fantasy. I had to make sure. I've decided that the next story we're going to read is The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelus by Ursula K. Le Guin.
0: Okay, I'll be honest, the author, very familiar with, amazing works the story not so much have you heard of it before no not in the slightest also know sok leguin we read wizard of versi one of the s fantasy books i think we've actually ever covered and i i would agree also it's also a perfect book so i'm very excited for this Jordy. you said it's almost maybe not fantasy i'm sure we'll debate it more after we've read it new read for you Uh, the only reason I
1: say that is that it's mostly just read in philosophy classes so that should give me an idea about what you're headed
0: into oh god alright Geordie I'm ready for this if any of you are listening if you've also read this book please come back and join us for this one if you've enjoyed this episode please drop us five stars the thumbs up whatever it is on the platform you're listening to us and while you're at it why not pop over to our Instagram it's just fantasy podcasts where you'll get regular updates of when new episodes go out and obviously some extra content filled in. Look forward for that Annabeth shark meme. Yes, and the memes that Geordie likes to post all of over there on Instagram So go and follow us there.
1: I don't like the way you said that. I don't like the way you said that at all. The memes he likes to post. Like I'm just amusing myself.
0: No, you you amuse me too. Don't worry. We're a partnership yeah, in this. Yeah, got it. Here we go.
1: I've been your host, Geordie Bailey, and I'm very suspicious of my
0: co-host. And I'm his co-host, Duncan Nicol, and Percy Jackson is an amazing book. Go read it. And also, Duncan, you should listen to the musical. It's
1: it's, it's a pretty good one.
0: Okay, (laughs) I will. I'll expand my mind in a new medium.
1: I Don't often touch. Come back next time to find out what Duncan thinks of the Percy Jackson of the Lightning Thief musical, which, by the way, Duncan uh, was, was playing in Broadway right before the pandemic across the street from Hadestown. Well, that sounds amazing. If
0: it ever makes it to the West End, I'll hit it up. It will certainly not. But <laughs> I've been your host, Jordy Bailey. <laughs> I've been your host, Duncan Nichol. Till next time.
1: Bye-bye.